Hello, everyone. This is Nikki, your host of the 7th Street Podcast, and this is the official last episode of the season. I want to thank each of you that tuned in for these last few months and kept up with the show. This project is really personal for me, so from the bottom of my heart, I just wanted to say thank you. And now, on to the show. So today on 7th Street, I will be recapping our first season of the 7th Street Podcast and giving you some updates on some of our stories. But before I get into our recaps, I really want to share why I felt this podcast was so important for Kansas City, Kansas. Last year, I made a commitment to be a more active citizen in the community, and I embraced any opportunity to speak up for reform in neglected communities. It was in a discussion that I had with our city's district attorney, Mark Dupree, that I truly understood that it wasn't procedural flaws hindering reform. It was a systematic one all along 7th Street. And while I listened to Mark Dupree explain the obstacles that I would be facing, I wrote down the word 7th Street in the corner of my notebook. This is when the idea came to me to start a podcast And at first, I wanted to just cover the police task force meetings and give small recaps that would be easy for people to listen to on a lunch break, rather than sit through an hour and a half virtual forum. But the content was honestly pretty boring, (laughs) and I also had no idea what I was doing. My first attempt to make a 30-minute episode took me three frustrating days, and it sounded horrible. So I tabled the idea and started focusing my attention as a lead organizer for Justice for Wyandotte and advocating for the cold cases we were coming across of black women in the Northeast District and learning more about Golubski's involvement with these women and how it tied into Lamont McIntyre's case. And as I realized how important it was to create a voice for these women who didn't have one, the idea of the podcast came again. But again, I had no idea how to produce a quality podcast for something so important. It truly wasn't until the incident with the police back in October that I discussed in the very first episode that it came to me to shed light on these systematic obstacles and push for accountability for these municipal infrastructures that we rely on to govern and serve our community. And with the little bit of publicity I did receive, I was able to get the resources to start this project. I partnered with a great studio to make sure I could provide the quality that this community deserves. And once I realized that this was a project I wanted to continue, I even stayed on my seasonal second job just to continue to fund it. It's been a learning experience. I'm not a writer. I'm not a reporter. I'm not in the media. All I know is I had a voice that people didn't mind listening to. So I used it. And that's what brings us to our very first episode about my really weird incident that I had with KCKPD. Here's a clip. So I get off the phone with my family, and then I call my former boyfriend, and I tell him about what happened. 
and he volunteers to go by my grandmother's house and pick up the tickets for me. And then he sends me a text message that says that they left you a note. So he gets back to his house and he tells me that they left me two tickets. Uh, One is for fleeing and attempting to elude an officer and the others for a defective headlamp. They had my driver's license, so they put that with my tickets. And then they left me this letter, um, this note, actually. It says, Miss Richardson, we aren't sure why you decided to run. You had no warrants and a valid driver's license. I implore you to make better decisions and not place you or other innocent with the word innocent underlined, people at risk. Respectfully, KCKPD. P.S. Here's your tickets. Smiley face. From my understanding, there's no time limit on when you can file a complaint after an incident, so I may very well still move forward. Also in this first episode, we hear from former KCK Commissioner Terrence Maddox, who shared his incident with KCKPD and how he was also said to be fleeing and eluding the police when he was active in the community. Terrence announced on this episode that he was elected the president of the local KCK chapter of the NAACP. I was proud to attend the ceremony virtually on January the 12th. He also mentioned uh, during this interview about the lawsuit that he has against KCPD after him and his daughter were pepper sprayed by KCPD at the plaza during last summer's protests. And I do have an update on that case. Recently, the Kansas City police officer was indicted by a grand jury in relation to those events last summer. Nicholas McQuillan, age 39, faces a single misdemeanor count of fourth-degree assault. Court records accuse McQuillan of recklessly causing physical injury to the juvenile when he sprayed chemicals into her face during the protests at the Country Club Plaza on May 30th, 2020. I'm very glad Terrence and his daughter are getting justice. Now for my second interview, I talked with the lead organizers of Justice Initiative Youth Council about their intentions to bring Brianna's Law to KCK and other large cities in Kansas. Here's a clip. We've seen violence in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, We've seen violence in Topeka. We have seen violence in Wichita. I think those are our three main hubs of police violence that we're seeing. And unfortunately, those areas have the FOP. And so if you guys don't know what the FOP is, it's the fraternal order of the police. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, and what's crazy is we live in a right to work state. So technically unions should not exist, right? In the way that they've done it. But somehow the police have meandered their way into keeping um, their institution intact. Um, and, and unfortunately that doesn't hold these um, officers that we consider bad apples. Um, to to really a higher standard. Yeah. Um, there's no justice for people that may die because I could be like, I, or they could be like, I'm in, I'm in fear for my life because he had a phone. And so because I thought it was a phone, it's justifiable. And no, it's not. So an update on that episode, the Brianna's Law for KCK project was held up due to funding. The team needs access to the police protocol handbook, which requires a Kansas Open Records Act request to be submitted. 
The team did send a request and received an invoice around $350. In light of the pandemic and just life in general, that was too steep for the group to gather, but they would like to move forward if they can get a sponsor for that project. So, if you would like to donate to the Brianna's Law for KCK project, you can use the donate link on the podcast website and memo your donation with the name Brianna Taylor. Our third interview was with the president of Donnelly College to talk about his thoughts that I heard him express in the Community and Police Reform Task Force meetings regarding using more social services for more effective policing. Here's a clip. I think all too often in, in the United States today, and true even here in Kansas City, Kansas, um, for the homeless, uh, for uh, the mentally ill, uh, for those suffering from the affliction of addiction, uh, we all too often treat those uh, people struggling in those three areas, the first time they can connect with government officials is through the police. And it ought not to be that way. Uh, the police should not have to be on the front line of dealing with mental illness or uh, drug or other substance abuse uh, or uh, on homelessness. The, these are social services. When it comes to addiction, medical personnel uh, and tra those trained in mental health when it comes to uh, the mentally in ill or, or someone who's having, you know, just having a, a difficult day, uh, you know, mental health experts. And uh, when it comes to uh, homelessness, uh, social services should be the leading edge, not the, the police. The community and police reform task force meetings are still ongoing. The most recent meeting discussed the police chief survey that was conducted last year and the hiring processes for the next police chief, along with the presentation on qualified immunity. Although these meetings might not be the most exciting, they are pretty informative. And you can follow the Unified Government on Facebook and YouTube to get event notifications when the next meeting happens. And for my last interview, I covered the one thing that is looming the entire world right now, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic and how the Unified Government and KCK is tackling building trust in vaccinations as they roll out their phases. Here's a clip. Janelle Friesen conducted an interview with Reverend Tony Carter, who you may remember from a previous episode, is on the Police Reform Task Force, to talk about his vaccination experience. She was joined by the director of UG Public Health, Julianne Van Loo, who provided more information about vaccinations and what people should expect. Let's give it a listen. I'm Janelle Friesen. It's January 14th, and this is our weekly update from the UG Public Health Department. I'm the Public Information Officer with the Health Department. I am here once again with Julianne Van Loo, our director, and we have a new guest here today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, Janelle. My name is, uh, I'm Reverend Tony Carter. I pastor the Salem Baptist Church in Kansas City, Kansas. I also have the awesome privilege of working with good people like yourselves. Uh, on the Health Equity Task Force. So glad to be here today. Really glad to have you here. So I understand that you um, just got your first dose of the vaccine recently. Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. A very positive experience. Uh, no 
problems, no worries. Everything went uh, uh, according to, to plan. And uh, I, it was a good experience. Uh, I don't have any side effects uh, to mention other than that right shoulder of mine is a little, little sore. But beyond that, I haven't had any other uh, uh, side effects. It's a good experience. The people there were very uh, kind, uh, very knowledgeable as it relates to what they were doing. Uh, the flow with the health department uh, there at the Kmart site was uh, very controlled. Uh, I, I was, I felt safe, uh, and uh, it was just a good experience overall. It was very well uh, handled, well orchestrated. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, we're we're pretty proud of what our staff have been able to do out at that site so far. Absolutely. Um, I'd be interested to hear you talk about um, why you decided to get the COVID vaccine. Well, you know, there's so much misinformation out there, and I think it's important for those of us who uh, are in quasi-leadership positions to lead by example. As far as an update for that interview, uh, we are currently in phase two of vaccinations. But if the trust has been built, right now it's really just too soon to say. And as all of you probably know, I also did some street stories about a series of unsolved murders and cold cases in the Kansas City, Kansas area. I started with the high profile Lamont McIntyre case, which for me, this was when I really understood the corruption of the police squad during that time. And it opened my eyes to other cases with similar connections. The next unsolved murder being one of the witnesses to the homicide that Lamont McIntyre was wrongly convicted for. Her name was Stacy Quinn. I have the pleasure of calling her sister and another key witness, Nico Quinn, a good friend. And I wanted to give her a chance to share her family's story. And she did a powerful job. Golubski exerted the power of his badge over Stacy Quinn for sexual favors, just like with Lamont's mother. And when you realize this, it forces you to look at other unsolved murders of black women from the Northeast Kansas City, Kansas districts with a very different lens. And that led me to my third street story, where we learn about Rose Calvin, who had a very similar story to Rose McIntyre, from being sexually assaulted by Golubski, all the way down to an allegedly wrongfully convicted family member. Rose Calvin was one of four women murdered in similar fashion over a span of three months. And recently, the media has come out that the Kansas Bureau of Investigation is now looking into potentially one more case that may be connected to Golubski's behavior. Her name is Robert Trebu, also known as Rhonda Easley. Although Golubski's behavior was disgusting and grotesque and terrorizing, the biggest concern is also the complicit nature of the police squad who worked with him daily one of them being Terry Ziegler, who was our last police chief, who resigned because of a completely unrelated matter. These officers are just as accountable for Golubski's actions as he is. And that's something we just can never forget. If you haven't listened to all of these episodes, they are available now on your preferred streaming platform. And I may pop in to update you on any related news to these stories. But this will be the last official episode of the season. I will be returning in the fall. Make sure to follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter to stay updated on related content and details about a release for the second season.
I hope to expand the podcast team beyond just me and my wonderful sound engineer and add a writer to the team. Ad sponsorship and donations will really help with that goal and will help me fund more episodes so I can work less hours and spend more time with the people that I love. So if you would like to donate to the show, you can do so at www.the7street.com and click the donate link at the top of the page. Again, make sure to follow us on Facebook at The 7th Street Podcast, on Instagram at The 7th Street Podcast, and on Twitter at The 7th Street Pod. So for one last time, and just for a while, that's all I have for you on 7th Street. I will catch you next time. Peace and blessings.